Welcome, I'm Ilan Jerno, and my guest today is Dr. Joshua Muravchik. He is a Foreign Policy Institute Fellow at Johns Hopkins School for Advanced International Studies. He's also a member of the editorial boards of several journals and an adjunct professor at the Institute of World Politics. Professor Muravchik is the author of 11 books. The two newest ones are Liberal Oasis and Making David into Goliath, How the World Turned Against Israel, which we'll be talking about in a moment. Before joining Johns Hopkins, he was a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and served on the State Department's Advisory Committee on Democracy Promotion. Now, I've followed your work for many years, and I've learned a lot in the process, and I really appreciate the work you've done. I do want to mention in passing that there are a number of issues uh, we don't see the same way, we see differently, um, notably the promotion of democracy in the Middle East, which is associated with neoconservative views. That's a topic for another time. Um, But what I want to jump right into is uh, your book, which I found incredibly perceptive and compelling, Making David into Goliath, How the World Turned Against Israel, published by Encounter Books just this summer. Joshua, welcome to the podcast. Well, uh, thank you, Ilan. Thanks for having me as a guest and also for your kind words about my book. So I wanted to start with an anecdote that is at the beginning of the book that I found incredibly arresting. So anyone who was watching the news this past summer will have seen reports about Israel's war against Hamas-controlled Gaza. And, of course, along with that came marches and protests in cities all around the world against Israel's actions in self-defense. And we saw that same sort of scenario play out in the previous Gaza war of 2008-9. Now, your book opens with other protests and intellectuals speaking out when Israel faced a war, but the scenario was quite different. They, They were speaking out in favor of Israel. Tell us about that. Well, at the time of the uh, 1967 Six-Day War, there was really very widespread support uh, for Israel, uh, particularly in Europe. There was strong support for Israel in the United States, but in Europe it was even stronger, and there were big uh, rallies held in Paris and London, uh, in Holland, uh, it, it was announced that all uh, churches on on the Sunday that fell within those six days uh, would have a prayer service for Israel, uh, and uh, and public opinion polls in the European countries uh, were showed uh, uh, support for Israel running something like thirty to one. Uh, I I think if you uh, took such a, a poll today, the numbers would be almost the opposite. So tell us about what was the, the essential difference? What changed between that high point that you described in 1967 and today? Well, a series of things uh, uh, changed, so I, I can't uh, give them in a quick answer because that's what I, uh, in a sense, take the whole book to try to uh, trace one after the other. But the most uh, the most superficial and important one was that Israel seemed terribly threatened on the eve of the Six-Day War, and it was after it won that overwhelming victory, it was never again to seem so endangered as it did uh, at that moment. Uh, In fact, uh, much of the world perceives Israel as being quite secure, which I think 
is a, a kind of misperception, but what's correct is that Israel has a very, very powerful military, more powerful than those of its enemies. Uh, then the second thing that happened is that um, the Six-Day War spelled the uh, death knell of Arab nationalism uh, because uh, the main exponent of that uh, philosophy was Nasser of Egypt, who was so tremendously humiliated in the war, and the ideology that he expounded really went down with him. And the end of Arab nationalism sort of cleared the field for the emergence for the first time of Palestinian nationalism. And uh, in the combination of the way that war ended and the territory that Israel ended up in, uh, occupying uh, uh, as a result of uh, its victory in the war and the emergence of Palestinian nationalism for, for the first time changed the perception of the conflict from one which, in which the large Arab world was seen as pitted against small Israel to one in which it was Israel against the Palestinians, in which Israel was the larger and stronger party. So that was a, a second part of it. And then, and, and then this situation was compounded by two other factors that unfolded over decades. One, on the one hand, there were very deliberate efforts by the Arab world, much more intelligent than there, and, than there had been before, to change world opinion. Uh, there was intimidation by terrorism and by the oil embargo. There was the, the use of uh, the numerical strength of the Muslim world to turn the UN into an anti-Israel platform and uh, and for other diplomatic advantage. And then there was also a, a change uh, intellectually that was a global change that was not engineered by the Arabs, that, uh, that was in, in the main ideas of leftism uh, over the second half of the 20th century, uh, was not engineered by the Arabs, was not particular to the Middle East, but ended up having a profound uh, consequence for the Israel Arab conflict or the way it was seen. And that was the rise of the concept of post-colonialism and uh, a, a new saliency that was attached to sort of the worldwide struggle uh, between uh, white Western people and uh, people of color around the world who were seen as the oppressed masses the way the working class had once been seen as the oppressed masses and a tremendous identity with the struggles of the peoples of color. And when this, as which, as I said, was not particular to the Middle East, but when this was applied to the Middle East, Israel appeared to be the Western white guys and the Palestinians or the Arabs were the anti-colonial people of color. And it made Israel automatically the bad guy and the other side automatically the virtuous ones. So all of these factors, one building on top of another and, and, and having a certain synergy between them, they worked uh, decade by decade to create a more and more hostile uh, climate uh, toward Israel globally. I want to come back to that uh, change in paradigm intellectually. But before that, you tell the fascinating story of how the Palestinian cause emerged and how it came to the fore 
because a lot of people think of the Middle East conflict or the Arab-Israeli conflict, and then after a while they stop and they ask, well, who? what are we actually talking about? Who are the adversaries? Because there's been so many changes over time. But now it's quite clearly it's an Israel-Palestinian, or at least primarily so. How did that come about? The uh, PLO was formed in 1964, but it was not formed at the initiative of Palestinians. It was formed at the initiative of President Nasser of Egypt, who was then and remains to this day the most popular leader that there has ever been in the Arab world. And Nasser's philosophy, as I mentioned a moment ago, was pan-Arabism, that all of the Arabs should be united in one omnibus state. By the way, he wasn't shy about saying who should be the leader of that omnibus state. And uh, and the idea of liberating Palestine was not that there should be an independent Palestine, but rather that uh, Palestine should be liberated from the Jews so it could take its uh, rightful place in this omnibus uh, Arab state. And really, Palestinian nationalism barely existed at that stage, as recently as the mid 19 60s. There were a few miscellaneous uh, young Palestinian Arab intellectuals who uh, harbored this idea of Palestinian nation, uh, but they were few and far between. They were led, uh, they were formed into a group led by Yasser Arafat that was based initially in Kuwait, where several of them were working. They, they formed Fatah, but in 64, when the PLO was formed, which was the main organization addressing the Palestinian issue, uh, they were not part of it. After the, in the 67 war, Nasser was so humiliated that he offered his resignation as president of Egypt, although later rescinded that offer. And, uh, and all the air went out of the balloon of pan-Arabism. And in the next years after 67, these, these, this small group of Palestinian nationalists uh, in Fatah moved into the PLO. Eventually, over just a couple of years, Arafat became the head of the PLO, and they began propounding the idea of Palestinian nationalism. And as they said in their own statements and publications at that time, that uh, one of their prime tasks was to propound the idea of Palestinian nationalism to the Palestinians so that they would think of themselves as a people. Uh, this is not to say something that is dismissive of Palestinian nationalism. Uh, in if we, if we go back to the days of Herzl, uh, the Zionists had to sell the Jewish world on the idea of a uh, of a uh, creating uh, a new a Jewish state uh, in Palestine, uh, so and other national movements have come about in this way. But the point is uh, not to not that it's illegitimate, but that it's a very recent phenomenon, and that uh, uh, until let's say the 1970s, when they began to really. Uh, put this idea across, first of all to the Palestinians and then to others, until then 
there really was uh, no such thing as Palestinian nationalism. Or that's a bit of an exaggeration, but there wasn't. It wasn't a real factor. It was only in the minds of a few. Uh, since then, over the last 40 years, it's become uh, quite a formidable thing. And most of the other Arabs uh, who range in their views uh, of, of willingness to accept Israel or still eagerness to see it destroyed, most of them take the position that this is primarily a Palestinian issue uh, rather than a, uh, a pan-Arab issue today. And so when the Palestinians come onto the stage, the appearance of a small group of uh, much weaker adversaries accentuates this image, or as you put it, misperception that Israel is far more powerful and seemingly in the wrong, therefore. Well, Israel is far more powerful. What's a misperception is that there's not only one asymmetry here. There are two asymmetries. One asymmetry is the asymmetry of means, of military means. Israel has much greater military power that it can deploy than any of its enemies. But the other asymmetry that seems to be much less noted or or discussed is the asymmetry of ends or intentions. And in that asymmetry, Israel has no desire to destroy any of the Arabs, any of the individuals, or any of the Arab states. And while once upon a time Israel did not accept the idea of a Palestinian state, when that was early in its in being propounded, uh, now even the Likud party of Netanyahu, uh, and certainly all the all the elements in Israel to the left of Likud, accept the idea of a Palestinian state. But on the other side, there are uh, a great many of the Arabs, and uh, from everything we can see, a majority of the Palestinians, who still do not accept the existence of Israel, whose goal is to make Israel sooner or later disappear, uh, so that Israel, uh, with a much smaller population, Uh, remains uh, ultimately in a terribly vulnerable situation because for all its military strength, uh, we don't know know, how long that military advantage will endure. And Israel is uh, uh, in a situation where it's surrounded by uh, people, many of whom uh, continue to harbor the goal of its destruction. You mentioned earlier the change in the intellectual paradigm, you put it from the workers or the class struggle to one where race is salient. And in the book, I remember you talk at length about the influence of Edward Said, and he's long dead now, but his influence continues. So can you sketch out for us what, what kind of impact has his work had? Well, his influence is tremendous, although... To be uh, to, to be fair, I, I, I do not think that he somehow single-handedly invented this new paradigm, but his uh, his famous book Orientalism, as well as others of his uh, writings, uh, crystallized this idea, put it across, delivered it to uh, 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 
to the academic world and the intellectual world, uh, perhaps uh, more powerfully than any other single uh, single document. Uh, and uh, his his argument was uh, that essentially, if you boil it down, what he was saying was that all white people are inherently racist, which is an absurdity. I mean, it's an absurdity because it itself is a racist statement. Uh, but uh, that, in fact, is uh, embedded in what he wrote. Uh, but he put it, uh, it when, when you say it that simply, as simply as I just have, people can see the absurdity of it. But instead, he put it in uh, very highfalutin uh, academic terms. And he purported to dig up the scholarship of all of the Westerners who studied uh, uh, Muslim civilization and purported to show that they all treated it in a uh, racist way that was aimed at uh, facilitating its subjugation. Uh, and so he put across, um, perhaps more powerfully than anyone else, this image that uh, the real global struggle that was going on was the uh, ongoing effort of the white man to suppress the people of color and the rebellion, the noble rebellion of the people of color uh, seeking their own liberation, their own equality and, and uh, day in the sun. And uh, uh, it's been, the work is completely flawed. It's worse than flawed. It's a fraud intellectually because uh, when he purported to show what uh, what Western scholars uh, wrote or said about the Muslim world, he uh, just uh, picked and chose whomever he wanted anywhere where they could find a racist quote. He said this was an influential Western scholar, when often it wasn't. And he manufactured quotes. He co he he misquoted. He he misrepresented people. And the whole thing is uh, really an intellectual scandal. The way he went about it, but uh, it, not for the first time, uh, this, uh, this kind of intellectual confidence game that he ran uh, went over a big time. And so you could read, for example, in a review at the turn of the century in, in the newspaper, The Guardian, the, the, the reviewer of one of his, his latest books saying, uh, Edward Said was perhaps the most influential intellectual of the 20th century. I'm curious about the the sort of ripple effect outside of academia, um, at least in the way the the conflict and particularly the adversaries are are seen. You you discuss the role of human rights groups and and NGOs. Can you tell us a bit about the story of Human Rights Watch and, and how? they've come to shape or influence the debate and the view of Israel? Well, Human Rights Watch is a very uh, influential organization uh, and a very, uh, w one of the most important working in the field of human rights. And it does some very valuable work of human rights advocacy in some parts of the world, or with respect to some parts of the world. But it's a deeply corrupt organization, and has been from the beginning, because it does not have a pure human rights agenda. Uh, from its very... Uh, human Rights Watch actually did not begin as a single organization. It began as a 
there was something called Helsinki Watch, which was a fine organization that was uh, took its name uh, from the Helsinki Accords between the East and the West in the Cold War, which which uh, aimed which organization aimed to uphold those accords and help you know, uh, shine a light on human rights violations by the Eastern European governments. Uh, but then there was also America's Watch, which was a kind of leftist uh, organization that uh, paraded under the banner of, of human rights, but was actually an advocacy group for uh, radical left uh, movements in Latin America. It was sympathetic to Castro and highly sympathetic to the uh, uh, communist uh, Sandinista government of Nicaragua. And uh, even while it uh, would issue reports that, uh, that cited and criticized rightist governments in Latin America for human rights abuses, it issued other reports defending leftist governments against the indigenous human rights organizations in those countries because what was leftist was good, ipso facto, even totalitarian leftist in the eyes of America's watch. So you then you had these different regional watch groups come together in one omnibus organization called Human Rights Watch. So it was a very much a mixed bag, some really genuine, valuable human rights work and some leftist work that was contrary to human rights. And it would depend on the staffing and from one region of the world to another, which human rights watch you got, the, the legitimate human rights advocates or the uh, leftist ideologues who, who disdained human rights. And as it played out uh, in, in creating a Middle East Department, it was very much the latter. So the Middle East Department of Human Rights Watch is really not interested in human rights. It's interested in bashing Israel and the West and in uh, supporting uh, revolutionary movements uh, so that you have a situation where the head of their Middle East department uh, was recruited to that job with no human rights background, but because she had worked for the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee, which was a radical Arab advocacy group. And then her deputy was someone who had founded a group called Merip, which was an advocacy group for uh, Palestinian terrorists uh, in the 1970s and put out a journal that espoused the cause of the terrorists and even applauded such things as the Munich Olympics massacre. And now these people come and parade under the banner of human rights, but human rights isn't their interest at all. Well, Joshua... Uh, we've come to the end of our time. I, I thank you for coming on to speak about your book, and I hope it gets the, the attention it deserves. Well, Elon, uh, thank you for giving me this opportunity. It's uh, it's a great pleasure to uh, to be with you.